Where do we find hope for our society that is caught up in an epidemic of narcissism and self-destructive behavior? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this, the third of our series on narcissism, we advance our discussion of our society and opportunities for hope. We're going to return to our conversation with Dr. Sheldon Solomon from a few weeks ago. In this episode, he extends the concerns about individual and collective narcissism into other areas, and together we explore some new ideas, new at least to us in this context. Sheldon Solomon, Ph.D., is a social psychologist at Skidmore College. He is best known for co-developing terror management theory with Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pasinski, which is concerned with how humans deal with their own sense of mortality. He is the author or co-author of over 100 articles and several books, and has been featured in several films, television documentaries, and radio interviews. He co-authored the book The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life with Greenberg and Pasinski. He most recently appeared in the documentary Planet of the Humans. Here's the conversation with Dr. Solomon. So we've got the narcissistic individual. And as you know, when you guys started the contemporary heroin, heroin, heroism, <laughs> fuck, you know, yeah, the contemporary heroin. It was me yeah. on heroin. I knew yeah. we were. All right, I so knew we, we had were the contemporary heroism initiative. Chi. Chi. We started with our four concerns that we've expanded a bit. So we said, well, one thing that we better attend to is the environment, because only the willfully ignorant and intellectually dormant will deny that we're dangerously close to rendering the earth unfit for human habitation. And so how could narcissism possibly have anything to do with this? And the answer is it has everything to do with it. And it wasn't even Becker, it was this guy, Lynn White, in the 1960s. Guy, fucking guy's name is Lynn. That's even worse than my name, Sheldon. But anyway, he'll have to live with that. He's probably dead now. But, but his, his point is that our trampling of the environment is best understood as a manifestation of narcissistic self-inflation that results from our conscious or unconscious adherence to the Judeo-Christian worldview. So he's like, well, everybody who exists now, we are the children of Genesis, where we can proclaim that we're secular humanists, but it doesn't matter. It's in our DNA that God created us in his image and gave us Everything else, God creates the heavens and the earth and the fishes and the fowl and the cattle. And we have dominion over all We have dominion over all. And so it's part of our world uh, that earth is a giant buffet table, that it is our right to plunder uh, at our convenience. And if we take a dump in the salad on the way out, so be it. Uh, And so uh, uh, for, for the narcissistic individual, The idea that anything that we might do in our lifetimes might adversely affect those who come after 
is like, what a shocking piece of irrelevant trivia. You know, so you have the Native Americans in Saratoga. There was a local tradition, which is that no decision can be made without considering its potential impact 10 generations from now. As you say, Steve, 10 minutes from now is long-term thinking. My quarterly earnings far outweigh my concern for the future of the planet. And so one possibility, and I believe it to be an important idea, is that a narcissistic individual is fundamentally incapable. All they care about is themselves. And if they're not here, their care really radically diminishes to zeros. And and the collective narcissism, the collective narcissistic society we find ourselves in, not only believes that we can do that, but it's owed to us. That's correct. And we are offended and we're defensive if anyone claims that we, we're not owed this. Yeah. We, here. That, that we can plunder whatever. We can burn down whatever rainforest. We can do whatever because that is our right. And it's the obligation of everyone to recognize that. That's right. Here, here. And that's another delusion of sorts that comes from the Industrial Revolution juxtaposed with our tendency to deny death. This is, I call it the Steven Pinker effect, which is that we can grow and uh, technical innovations will extricate us from all of our difficulties. So the narcissistic person not only denies that nature is important, but is overly confident that the material efforts to control it will prevail. And that's correct. They share the same sense of resentment and entitlement that is characteristic of individual narcissists. So there's a sense in which, and Janice Dickinson, do you know her work? So she was a biologist at Cornell who wrote a paper called The People Paradox based on Becker and our stuff. And we should look at that because that's her point is that our contempt for the environment and our refusal to embrace the need to change it is a result of our narcissism. So let's say that. And then what else do we used to talk about? We used to talk about economic inequality. Yeah, so let's go with economic inequality. And so here's... And that's related to environment. Oh, it is. All of these things are related. And I think that's the point. And of course... That's how we, you guys, with my enthusiastic endorsement, that was the whole guiding principle of contemporary heroism initiative is to say, well, look, here are these current concerns. We've got the environment. We've got economic instability. We've got rampant levels of psychological disorders. We've got a fundamental inability to get along with other humans, either external enemies or now the internal domestic ones. And I I like the idea that we break up war and bigotry and just see one as coming from afar where the other resides within. We got the economic inequality. Remember Locke says economic inequality natural and good. And we know that 
to be untrue for at least three reasons. One is that even the most ardent defenders of the free market acknowledge that economic inequality is fundamentally unstable. Uh, and Let me just interject the one word, radical economic inequality. Oh, yeah. There's a, because so, a certain amount of economic inequality is inevitable. And, and necessary. And necessary. Yeah. Because if, if one person, like my friend I talked about last night, if he wants more money... So he should go get it. He should go get it. Yep. And he's, so he's going to have more than me yep. because that's his focus. It's important to him. And, and even him. Marx never denied that initiative is important. And so let's stipulate that. Right. And what I'm about to talk about comes from the World Bank. And so let's use them. The World Bank says, look, absolute equality is impossible and undesirable. And the, the fact of the matter is, because this is true, is what messes up every effort to have a decent society is what do you do about the assholes or in evolutionary language, the cheaters. So you try and do the right thing, but it can't work as long as people exploit the system by taking resources and contributing nothing. So you, there has to be a mechanism to inspire initiative, as well as to discourage free riding, is what they call it. All right, but the point that Marx makes, and he's right, he's a crappy economist in terms of figuring out what to do about it, but no one had a better handle on what would inevitably happen. And that is that in any economy, and that's this Picardy dude, you know that book, the Picardy. So the Picardy. So and that's his point. His book, Capital, is just yeah. saying Marx is right. Money begets money. Once you have it, you'll invest it. That always produces a higher rate of return than wages. Over time, more money will be in fewer people's hands. And as Marx pointed out, that will always result ultimately in the collapse of an economic system for the reasons that Ken argues. And that is that Fewer and fewer people have more and more of the money. And then you have large masses of individuals who now lack the means to buy stuff that undermines the well-being of the people who sell stuff. All right, so one problem with huge inequality is the inevitable result is a depression. And what some people say, this is the Joseph Schumpter guy. So he's a Austrian economist, and he called it creative destruction. He just said, if you step back, it's true that there's been, I'm just making this number up, 12 depressions since the 1700s. It's also true that during those depressions, that large chunks of humanity were fucking leveled, starved, Lives were miserable, but so what? In the long run, we're now all better off. And of course, people of goodwill could argue that maybe we'd be better off. Materially if, better off. That may be materially better off. But not necessarily psychologically. No, not at all. Yeah. But you might argue that in the long run, we'd all be better off if we tempered that 
by saying we will sacrifice the rate of progress for a more even distribution of resources to render the system more stable and people to be better off. Because what Locke didn't know, what Milton Friedman didn't know, but what we now know is that it is radical inequality, not poverty per se, that is psychologically and and physically debilitating. So beyond subsistence, if you have enough to eat and if you have a place to live, if everybody around you is in fairly similar straits, you're fine. But you're not fine in most cosmopolitan cities where you have shanty towns next to Trump Towers. Then what you find, and this is empirical fact, you cannot wish this away, and that is that people are, A, more miserable when inequality goes up to a certain point. They become more cynical, and they have less trust in government to provide for the common good. And it's a physical nightmare that everything from cardiovascular problems to cancer rates to all forms of psychological disorders. This is Wilkinson and Pickett, the spirit level. That's correct. And so we know that people are physically and psychologically miserable in these conditions. And we also know this is true as evidenced by the fact that Whitey is dying much earlier in the Midwest. The main point is that narcissism also perpetuates and magnifies inequality because it turns out that narcissists are more in support of hierarchically organized societies, which are by their nature unequal. They may not understand the level. They they surely don't. They may not understand how radical the inequality has become. Yeah, but you need things to be radically unequal because remember, the narcissist is a legend in their minds who is not happy unless they're the best. And they want the opportunity to reach the top There you of go. That. So there's got to be a pinnacle that you can strive for. And so here we have, once again, narcissism underlying and magnifying economic inequality. Which is counterintuitive to where we were before, thinking that the mental health was a malady resulting from the economic inequality, which is what Wilkinson and Pickett are saying. That's right. You've got more stress, more depression, all these things. And Pickett, he's saying, well, you're going to have social unrest. That's right. But we're saying, look at it the other way. Narcissism is a multiplier of this problem yes. that we have as a society. That's right. And that it's well put. So let's shift to narcissism and war and, and bigotry. bigotry. Right. Because it's not much of a stretch because by definition, narcissism is wear the best and fuck the rest. And whether it's internal or external, What that means is that individually and collectively, you have to be better than everybody around you. And so therefore- And they have to recognize that. They have to recognize that. And so 
one element of narcissism is an us versus them phenomenon. Either as an individual, everybody that doesn't love me is out to get me, or collectively, we're the best, and if you're not us, then you're the worst, and we have to kill you. So this is Becker 101, the mere existence of somebody who is different, is is a threat, and a potential blow to my narcissistic self-regard by intimating that there are other ways of living that might be as functional and as valuable as my own. And so, therefore, I've got to kill them, thus proving that my God is superior after all. And think about George W. Bush, who maintained that God put him on this earth to be the president who would then take this, he called, crusade, which was an amazing choice of terms, take this crusade to the Middle East. He was God-ordained well, to do this. And look at Trump, who said and, two days ago, I believe God made the pandemic to challenge me. <laughs> and he has declared himself the, the chosen one. The chosen one. But well, it's got to, yeah. yeah, but there's, there's, a, there's an internal dynamic also. And this is what's important, is that the ugly underside of narcissism is that you are perpetually apprehensive. You're perpetually insecure, and there's always got to be some way to offload residual death anxiety, which is best done by projecting it on to a person or group that you designate as the all-encompassing repository of evil. And we've talked about this, and the most visible manifestation of that in our culture is racism. Right. And The fact of the matter is, and it's a long story, but we invented racism in order to justify the dehumanization of black people in order to avoid the unbearable cognitive dissonance that would otherwise arise in a country that purports to embrace the notion that everybody's created equal when you can then in turn own people. And colonialism and imperialism. Absolutely. Same thing. But you can't have it both ways. So the only way to manage it is to denigrate and dehumanize the other. And in the case of slavery, that's why there were white and black and yellow. There were all kinds of slaves. But that was creating problems. And my understanding historically is we stuck to black ultimately for commercial reasons, but also for psychological ones. The visible distinction is (laughs) black and white. It's clear and unambiguous and fostered, therefore, an easy way, easy for white people, that is, to just say, to use a Dylan song, you're better than him, you've been born with white skin, he explained. And one of the things that we cannot appreciate what's happening now in the United States without recognizing that we are a white country based on white power, where whiteness has never been a secure attribute because it's fake and we know it. And whiteness has always been defined as not black. At this point, in the interest of saving time, we transition to the next topic. 
So we've been talking about narcissism and its prevalence in our modern world, and now we'd like to transition into some, I guess, relatively new ideas on how it can be counteracted and its negative effects on us minimized. And doing this in a way that will be familiar to most of us certainly is to Steve and myself, because it comes from the source of our earliest teachings, which would be uh, gratitude and humility, two words that traditionally meant living a good life, living a proper life. And I had brought up this article that I found entitled An Upward Spiral Between Gratitude and Humility by a number of social psychologists. And let me see if I get the name right. Sonia Leobamersky. You don't know. Gesundheit. And, and four others. But what they say here in the, in the abstract, humility is characterized by low self-focus, secure sense of self, and increased valuation of others. Gratitude is marked by a sense that one has benefited from the actions of another. And they conclude by saying, Humility and gratitude are mutually reinforcing. And we came upon this, Sheldon, when you met with us five years ago, we were videoing, video recording you in your office, but out, standing in the hall outside your office, you referenced a graphic that was describing a TMT experiment by a female grad student yeah, of Kate. yours. What was her name? Kate? Kate, yeah. And she was attempting to demonstrate that humility and gratitude are also defenses against death anxiety, like self-esteem. And then the question arose, well, are humility and gratitude as effective defenses as self-esteem? And in fact, does self-esteem take you in the direction of narcissism, whereas humility and gratitude, I made up the phrase, Humility and gratitude are narcissism antimatter, that they cancel each other out. And we're looking at this as something that's a little outside of Becker. I don't remember him ever talking about humility. And looking at this as a source of hope. And we were talking about humility and gratitude in terms of religion. And they're kind of at the heart of so many faiths. Certainly the faith I grew up in, which is Catholicism, is all about humility. You are second to God, maybe third to the angels in this pantheon of creation. Yes, you have dominion over the animals, but you're in no way the top of the food chain. So you have to remain humble, and pride is a cardinal sin. Pride, putting yourself above God, is a cardinal sin in the in the Catholic faith. And gratitude it's about not just being grateful for the Christmas gift you got, but being grateful for your life, your God-given existence. And your friends. Well, and your society. Gratitude and, yeah, and just the state of being. Yeah. Yeah, your friends, your family, yeah, all grateful to your mother, all of those things. But it's a more general feeling of warmth. Yeah. And acceptance. And I'm not divorcing myself from Becker by any means, but the Beckerian idea of dwelling on death, 
puts you in a certain frame of mind. Yes. Whereas when you're dwelling on gratitude, it puts you in a very different place. Now you're saying, yeah, my life will end, but I'm grateful. That I have one. I've got one. Yeah. Yeah. And a good one. Yeah. Most of us. Like the fly who lasts three days. Well, was that fly better off never having been created or did he got he got three good days out of the deal? Hard to say. <laughs> right. But if you're focused on the end of life, and this isn't fair, the way Sam Keane put it, it's not fair. It's not I didn't sign up for this. This is completely not, unacceptable. This is completely unacceptable. Whereas you say, Hey, I got seventy one years. This is yeah. pretty and they're good years. Yeah. Not bad at all. There's two ideas there that I love. One is the upward spiral. Yes. The fact that you're going in a direction and it seems to be repetitive. Yes. We've been talking about downward spirals a lot. Now yeah. We're talking about, it's I, nice to yeah. be thinking you're going up for a yeah. minute. And not to say that it conflicts with Becker. I'd prefer to say it maybe builds on Becker. It might be the next step yes. after Becker yes. if better Darwin's grounding much, everything. Much better. Right? It. It's, yes. it's, you don't need to say you, I'm going to conflict with it. It's always going to be there in our DNA, so to speak. But this is maybe something that would be a little easier for people to focus on and feel like they could make a positive difference by doing things that they already know how to do. So let's ask our mentor, Sheldon here. Does any of that make sense? Yeah. How do humility and gratitude relate to narcissism? Well, yeah, you already said it, Steve. It's the antimatter. It's antithetical to narcissism. I mean, read that definition again, because I think point by point, go ahead, in terms of... Definition of of humility and gratitude. Yeah, yeah, humility. Humility is characterized by low self-focus. The opposite of narcissism. Opposite. Secure sense of self. The opposite. And increased valuation of others. The opposite. Wow, is it ever? It's complete opposite. Yeah. Point by point. Yeah. And um, that's correct. Gratitude is marked by a sense that one has benefited from the actions of another. Nice. So it's the opposite of the resentment and entitlement yes. that is central to the narcissistic enterprise. And uh, I like how you put it, Ken, when early on, just a couple of minutes ago, you're like, oh, let's talk about some new ideas. But of course, nothing new under the sun. No. What you're really saying is, let's go back and resuscitate some ideas that have been with us since antiquity and perhaps rescue them by looking at them from a contemporary perspective where they need not necessarily be encumbered by traditional religious belief systems with no disrespect to them. So, since minute one, uh, the Epicureans and various religious traditions have emphasized the sheer mystery and ultimately sublime privilege of being alive. And with the concurrent warnings about the dangers of hubris, of narcissism, So we're not making anything up when we begin to, even in a primitive for us and cursory fashion, start to wonder about what is the dynamic between narcissism and humility and gratitude. And 
I mean, when you guys came to see me last, which again, I can't believe it was five years ago, <laughs> but it had to be because I had just read that book, The Slavery of Death by Richard Beck. I think we spoke about him last evening. I don't know him personally, but you know, a remarkable person, a theologian and a PhD psychologist. And I found it eye-opening when, and a Becker scholar, he just said, look, yeah, I'm nervous about self-esteem because it's too close to narcissism. Turn the volume up a little too loud and you're in a bad place. That's right. Because when you're striving for self-esteem, you're still metaphorically, but and not necessarily malignantly, you're still trying to inflate yourself. Build yourself up. Build yourself up. And that worries Beck because he's like, I can't see how that doesn't have unintended adverse consequences. I don't see how that doesn't make you kind of competitive, maybe resentful of somebody else's success. And the conservatives, we talked about this in a podcast, attacked Fred Rogers yep. for creating a generation of self-entitled people, as though Rogers had that power. But they were highly critical of him, of course, being yep. narcissists themselves. But this idea of self-entitlement in this next generation is a big issue because they're saying, oh, these kids have been raised with everything and wanting more and more of it. And then you say, well, there's this epidemic of narcissism among the millennials, so they kind of have a point. But this idea that we're entitled, this American exceptionalism entitled us to stuff and continues to entitle us to kick the hell out of the Middle Eastern and take, take their oil or create a hemisphere that's dominated by our white supremacy. There's a book by Ortega y Gasset from the early part of the century called The Revolt of the Masses. And in it, he explores the idea that that was the first time after the Industrial Revolution when people were starting to look a little bit differently at the world and what it contains in terms of its utility for themselves. And he uses the idea of air to start with. Air is everywhere and it's free for all. It's here. You can breathe as much of it as you want to and nobody can say that you can't. So far. So far. Around that time, they've got cars for the first time and they're building roads. And he said people already are having a tendency to look at the roads like they're air. They're just there. Of course we're going to ride on the roads. And they don't remember that that road took a lot of work and a lot of technology and to put it there and decide to put it here as opposed to there. And then you got to take care of it and you got to maintain it. That would require gratitude on their part. And just understanding that it didn't just come from nowhere. And would require humility to say to yourself, maybe I'm not automatically entitled to any of this. So now, fast forward 80 years, I think people are starting to look at the internet and a cell phone like it's air, particularly the millennials, because they don't know life without it. And 
Do you have any idea what it took to invent the internet and what it takes every second to maintain it and to keep all the people who are trying to attack your data constantly at bay so that they can't do that? So let's get back to this idea that humility and gratitude cancel out narcissism. What could we say about humility and gratitude in terms of those big issues that we mentioned, like income inequality, like environment, bigotry, war? In other words, can you picture a humble, grateful president saying, yeah, let's go declare war and kill several hundred thousand Iraqis and lie about weapons of mass destruction as the, the excuse to do it? Sean, how do you see humility and gratitude as potential answers to some of the, the issues we've been discussing? Well, in the jargon of terror management theory and in Becker's language, it would be a non-defensive way to manage death anxiety. Back to the Beck dude for a moment. His concern is that traditionally we reduce death anxiety by embracing our cultural worldview and striving for self-esteem. But once we do that, that inclines us to hate people who are different and to blow ourselves up to hypercosmic proportions, at which point we're on the edge of malignant narcissism. And so the claim psychodynamically is that humility and gratitude give you the upside, which is the mitigation of existential terror, without the downside. And it's a pretty powerful psychological cocktail that has the benefit of being affirmed by thousands of years of cross-cultural religious traditions that all converge on the same point. So it really goes back to the Durkheim guy talking about collective effervescence, that it is what one does in light of the grateful acknowledgement of the vagaries of the human condition. You know, here's the little passage from a Tom student, uh, Palin Kesbar, and I'm probably mangling her name. Very talented woman. So here's her description of a humble person. And I like it because it maps on to what you were saying, Steve. So she writes, a humble person is first and foremost capable of tolerating an honest look at the self and non-defensively accepting weaknesses alongside strengths. This does not represent a sense of inferiority or self-denigration, but rather lack of self-aggrandizing biases. The propensity for seeing the self in true perspective is typically accompanied by awareness of the self's smallness in the grand scheme of things. Humble people tend to be more sensitive and feel more connected to forces larger than themselves. Finally, and relatedly, those who stand in humility exhibit a remarkable lack of self-focus. They are easily able to take themselves out of the middle of the picture and direct attention towards the greater world beyond in seeing, honoring, and potentially contributing to something bigger than themselves, they transcend egotistical concerns and the attendant urge for defensive self-serving maneuvers. So they've taken this whole thing about being connected to something 
larger than yourself. Yeah. Which in Becker's Freudian terms, transference. Exactly. And she's kind of turning that around and saying, yeah, but recognizing this larger than myself aspect of life, I'm humble in the face of it. That's correct. In other words, this is really a quite clever keto-ing. It's usually, you know, I'm blowing myself up to cosmic proportions in Ronk's way of thinking about things. I saw art and artists uh, in one of the other rooms and it's like, yeah, that's this idea that we make ourselves as large as the universe by identifying, you know, like when we dice up the stars into parts of the human body and when we see ourselves as God's emissaries, yeah, well, that fosters a reduction in existential anxieties, but it's a radical distortion of ourselves. Whereas the point about humility is it's actually a realistic recognition of what I've been calling right now radical insignificance. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Radical Radical insignificance. (laughs) But, but, But what we're saying is that, first of all, that happens to be true. Secondly, that takes all the pressure off. If I'm radically insignificant, then it doesn't matter much if I write a book today or walk the dog. Each of those things can be just as joyous and, frankly, just as ultimately productive a contribution to the life force as doing something that is worthy in a culturally constructed sense. And so I like this idea. You know, so remember Michelle Obama's like, when every when everyone else goes low, we go high. What we're saying is everything in the West is based on growth. We got to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're saying respectfully, no, you know what? If we're going to get bigger, we got to get smaller. We've got the looking glass in the wrong direction. And this, again, it has the benefit of being more realistic, more ecumenical, in that almost everybody on Earth has something that we could be grateful for and humble about. But what we've left out in all that this need for meaning and purpose that religion gave us. Yes. And the existentialists are saying, well, you make your own. Yeah. But isn't that kind of a narcissistic position to say, I make my own meaning and purpose. Sure. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm a self-made person. It is something about that. Now, in light of humility and gratitude, that I feel like maybe that's not such a great thing to say you make your own meaning and purpose. Well, that was always a, a somewhat of a misunderstanding of the existentialists because they never denounced the idea that we start from a foundation of shared meanings and purpose. Their view, as I understand it, is just to insist that life is not intrinsically meaningful which does not mean, however, that it's intrinsically meaningless. So again, that raises the question, well, what is it? What is it? Of course, this is back to Becker and Kierkegaard. You have to have this 
leap of faith in God. And this is where I'm saying, at least tentatively, that I get that. But the Heidegger point is you don't need God for meaning, and you don't need God to have a stance towards the world that is humble, grateful, joyous. And, you know, this fucking guy's writing in German, and I still need a dictionary to understand the English translation. But he talks about being in a state of solicitude, that's kindness and care. And he's like, no, that will naturally follow from his idea of authentic living. And it's not faith in God, it's faith in life. Because when you're grateful and humble, you're not feeling like you're being slighted or entitled. You just realize that, well, who knows? We all realize this in a different way. But, you know, you wake up one day, fuck, here I am. Uh, It didn't have to be that way. You know, one chromosome different, I'm a mongoloid. Two chromosomes different, I'm a chimp. Three, I'm a pomegranate. (laughs) And, And... And it's the awe, just the sheer luxuriating in the recognition of the value, the intrinsic value and privilege, frankly, of being alive. How does that relate to biophilia? I think that when E.O. Wilson writes about it, I think that's what he's groping towards. He's come as far as you can get while refusing to consider the existential aspects. Okay. Can uh, I ask what biophilia is? I didn't read yeah, that. Yeah, it's love of life. Love of nature. Love, love of nature of yeah. and love of life. These are new ideas for me also, Steve. They resonate because my dad, I was raised in a secular Jewish household, but he was always, look, there's always somebody bigger and better than you. We were taught that pride and humility, uh, you know, those are the proverbial wingmen of psychological well-being. You can't have one uh, without the other. You know, if you've got pride but no humility, you're a narcissist. If you have humility without pride, then that's self-deprecating. There's, again, the sweet spot of the need to affirm ourselves as viable forms of sentient life with the collateral recognition (laughs) that we're transient entities permanently prone to being obliterated at any time, which is another Heidegger point that I'm stuck on. And that's that Heidegger's point is, if you're like, oh, I'm going to die someday, at some vaguely specified future moment, he's like, that's not authentic living. That's death denial. You're just pushing things in the future. You've not come to terms with death until in your gut you are painfully and poignantly aware that you could be smote at any time. 
like my looking around my rooms in the morning before I leave exactly. to work and going, is this what I want them to see? Yeah. <laughs> or you guys went off for lunch and I'm like, I hope those fuckers come back with my sandwich. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, you, I hope they come back alive at all. Well, there's that. <laughs> we can yeah. make something else. And so, and I don't know why I'm saying those things except that I like Heidegger's point, which is that. When you see it that way, when you're like, not only am I going to die, but it's always potentially imminent. And I like his language because he's like, that creates a psychological clearing. He calls it a, a horizon that you get to see stuff that you wouldn't see otherwise. And he talks about it as if you're in the middle of a theater in the round. He's like, well, if you look one way, when you realize that you're finite and always potentially immediately prone to obliteration, well, there's the one direction that we're familiar with, and that's the backer point. You, you recognize that you're essentially a culturally constructed meat puppet and that the culture is the necessary lie uh, about the nature of reality. And you can go in the backer direction. Heidegger even calls it flight from death, which I asked Greg about, and he said they had no idea uh, when they made the movie. Oh, likely story. And No, it was. <laughs> he, he claimed to be functionally illiterate, and I accepted that claim. Um, <laughs> and me too. No, but Heidegger's like, okay, so one reaction to the stark realization of the ephemeral nature of everything and everyone is you double down on the culturally constructed beliefs, and you become, and here he uses the Kierkegaard phrase, because Heidegger was influenced by Kierkegaard. Here's the being tranquilized by the trivial. But Heidegger then notes, but when I say tranquilized by the trivial, what I really mean is that most people are so bound up in their cultural belief systems that they're frenetically devoted to them to the point where they never sit still long enough to consider the possibility that they're just even more deluded than they were prior to that flight from death. All right, so far, so good. But then Heidegger, and I love this, he says, yeah, but that's not the only way, and he calls it the turning. And so now... It's like, okay, it's the same situation. You're still coming to terms with all what's essentially death anxiety. But rather than going with the leap of faith thing, what Heidegger does is to say, okay, you realize that you really are a quite arbitrary accident. And uh, you could have been born in a completely different time and place. And had you been born in a completely different time and place, there's no way you would have the same opportunities or limitations. You know, I'm a professor. If I was born in the 12th century to a Mongolian goat herder, you know, I'd be living in a yurt and farming. But Heidegger's point is that there's no way to shrug off our socializing experiences and our cultural background. There's no way we can do that, nor should we. You know, rather what he says is you realize either consciously or not that you have no choice, but existentially speaking, to make the best of 
your current circumstances by exercising the choices that you have within the confines of the limitations of your circumstances. And we, at this point in time, I wish Heidegger were alive to see this, but here we are being pummeled, punished by nature. Yep. The pandemic is a result of human activity. Of course. Our infringement on the natural world, the wild animals that we did not used to come in contact with, and now right. bringing viruses into our population, Ebola, SARS, COVID. Yep. This is all part and parcel with the climate change. Yes, it is. But we're also affecting. My town got hit by a tornado the first time I ever heard of it in 30 years. Yeah. And we without power for eight days. Boy, does that bring home to you how really small you are. Doesn't it? You know, all of a sudden. We can't do anything with No internet, no yeah. phone, no hot no water. No, um, it was, no lights. It was unbelievable. So you say, okay, what's our relationship with nature? Yeah. We've been putting ourselves outside of nature, dominating nature. We're going to control nature. We're going to dam up this river. We're going to knock down this mountain. And we're saying now, whoa, nature's pushing back hard. Exactly. We have to come to grips with, number one, our humility in terms of the vastness and power of nature. Yes. And our gratitude to nature for the very sustenance that we have. Yes. And if we're not grateful to nature, nature has a way of getting even. Not consciously, but certainly the natural response is not very pleasant. So here we are, we're thinking about humility in terms of the individual, which is important, but also in terms of the group, because we were talking earlier about collective narcissism, perhaps there's such a thing as collective humility. Yeah. Collective gratitude. A people that lives by humility and gratitude in its response to the world around it. Yeah. And says, well, yeah, we'll defend ourselves if we have to, but we're not about hegemony. We're not about control. Imperialism. Yeah. We, don't, we are not about colonialism, imperialism. We're not about dominating 1.5 billion Muslims, which is insane and impossible to do, but we're yeah. still trying to do it. We are a humble, grateful people who want to share the planet with other humble, grateful people. Yes, and this is a manifestation of strength. Yes. Not a concession. Yes. All we're doing is now thinking about where are we and what next. And I see no viable what next that doesn't include a focus on gratitude and humility. And I say that in part because the other way is unsustainable. We've gone as far as we can with self-esteem. Yeah, because it's, it, it's still based on unlimited growth. It's still ultimately, it's unsustainable. And it's individual focused. Yeah. So this idea of self-actuation, self-determination, self-made, it's the... Kazasui project yeah, it's of the child. Yeah. But the adult 
it should be way beyond that. But we're mired in that as a culture. We're we're talking about the whole bootstrap myth again. It's nonsense. Yeah. It's, well, that's right. First of all, it's nonsense. Yeah. And secondly, the net result is the tourist crossing 42nd Street with the fucking selfie stick. Yes. I mean, everybody's yes. <laughs> Yeah, right. What and an image. What yeah. an image. It is. It's amazing, isn't it? You get all this technology, and what are you doing with it? You're taking pictures of, of yourself, yourself. Yeah. to show your friends and watch yourself and look at me. Yeah. That's look just, at me. That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. So I'm, to me, that sums it up, is that we have gotten to the point where a genuine human experience requires a self-referential recursive process that is ultimately posted in a virtual, thus, in principle, permanent form. It's mm. the ultimate form of self-glorification in the service of death denial. Yeah. And an incredible dead end. It's alienating. It detaches us from our connections to others. It maintains a persistent state of self-focus when, in fact, the evidence suggests that our well-being depends on self-focus being an occasional state, necessary, but necessary as a state that we use from time to time. Just like you bring your car in to be tuned up, but you don't leave it in the shop every day. So I'm enamored with this idea. And what I'd like to do, but, and you guys would like this, but we should all get acquainted with what Kenneth is doing. Yeah. Because I pissed away two years on Heidegger just to piss away another year on Sylvia Benzo. And this is the Italian philosopher that is a combination of Heidegger and Levinas. So basically, Levinas is a dead French philosopher. And he's kind of like a Martin Buber type. Everything's relational to Levinas. And so the the point that uh, Sylvia Benzo makes that I think is works well for us, and I'd like to try to integrate, is her view after thinking about things through the Heidegger and Levinas lens, is that she would like to get to a point where people basically, her word for it is tenderness or kindness. I saw a whole lot of signs, by the way, that said, be kind. On the way in here, in my town. And I love that. So that's the antidote to Trump signs uh, and Blue Lives Matter. Yeah. Why can't we all sign on to that? But her idea is that, and it's basically, if you're humble and grateful, that you're going to be kind and compassionate. You're going to have a more tender view of life that in turn, at its best, she uses her word is festive. That when we look at ancient rituals, that they're marked by festivity, but not in the frivolous, I'm going to get wasted and puke in the sink, as the ultimate celebration of life. You see that in South America and Central America. There's music and there's there's a just a feeling of celebration and being relaxed. That's and right. Even on Good Friday, which has this solemn, solemn flavor, but still, yeah, the whole town turns out. We we saw this in Mexico. It was it was remarkable. 
the the town turns out and parades into the street and brings Jesus in the coffin into the church and puts it in the church and then he lies there all through Holy Saturday until Sunday, Easter Sunday, he rises magically. And you say, this is this a celebration. Yeah. We had that as kids, but it was all in the church. Yes. This is out in the streets. It's accessible. It is, again, the original function of religion, to bind. And I want to think about this as more. Think about Eric Fromm wrote The Sane Society. Yep. Maybe what we need now is the humble, grateful society. I think we need something, something along those like lines. Because the sane society would be humble and grateful. You hope. And yeah, yeah and I really I want to hook up the humility, gratitude, tenderness, and festivity. The festivity part is important in fairness to Benso. The way she describes it is it's a broader term that is meant to emphasize that we're in it together and that there is a certain effusive joy that results from a humble and grateful acknowledgement that we're all here essentially on borrowed time. And I I, I like that. And it's very and it's very hopeful. And, and I hopeful. think that we've got stuff to work on and work towards. Yeah, I think so too. And again, this is it's so easy to um essentially dump this on Becker because the fact is, is we were all profoundly influenced by him. He is towards the end of his life wondering about if human beings are a viable species. And yet, despite that, he was still, it's incumbent upon each of us to do something, to do something creative, not for ourselves. So it was never about self-aggrandizement, to toss it into the life force, as it were. As an offering. He, he calls, calls it, it an, an offering. offering. And so I'm, you know, as I was musing last night, the guy died early. I wish we were sitting here. And it would be very interesting to see if he ultimately uh, would wander in this direction. The point earlier, which is that humility, gratitude, tenderness, festivity are the ultimate expressions of strength and security. They're not the purview of the weak and the meek. It's the Trumps of the world that are weak, albeit not meek. These are important ideas. Yes, they are. Thank you for coming to the Hub for important ideas and sharing them with us, Sheldon. You are very welcome. This has been this a fabulous, been fabulous event. fantastic. We could not have asked for more of your time and energy and thought and creativity, and this has been just great. Probably the most important ideas we've explored so far. So far. Hopefully we're not done yet. Pursuant to this discussion, one can never be completely sure, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy that one. Please join us next time. Like us on Facebook and recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener-supported, as always. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Stay well.